Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights. With your host, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. Today, our guest is Carol Meredith, grape geneticist and professor emerita at University of California, Davis, whose research established the parentage of Cabernet Sauvignon, among many other grapes. She is now grape grower and wine producer at Leger Meredith Vineyard in Napa Valley. Carol, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here. I'm super excited about this because wine terminology is something I feel is often misused and and you being an expert in this field in terms of grape clones and varieties is something I would love to talk about. But I was wondering prior to getting into that, as you give us a little background about your career in wine and how you became, you know, interested in grape DNAs and, and also your work at UC Davis. Okay, well, I originally got into plant genetics a long, long time ago, back in the 70s, because I'd actually been working part-time in a retail nursery, and I was pretty much fascinated by how many different marigold varieties and petunia varieties there are, and thought, wouldn't it be great to be one of the people who actually makes those? And I learned that that's what flower breeders do, so I thought I wanted to be a flower breeder. And so I decided to go to grad school and got into the plant genetics program at the University of California at Davis. As soon as I got started at that, I realized that there were many more significant things I could do in plant genetics than be a flower breeder. And so I ended up very quickly changing from a master's program to a PhD program and working with one of the most renowned tomato geneticists in the world. He was pretty much a plant explorer, Dr. Charlie Rick, and doing my PhD on tomato genetics and then leaving UC Davis and going to work for a biotech company for a couple of years where I worked on cotton and corn and soybean and tobacco A lot of things, all trying to apply the very new tools of biotechnology to crop plants. And I really wanted to do something significant for agriculture, but I very quickly realized that working for a private company was not necessarily going to be the best way to do that because their motivation was money. My motivation, I was rather idealistic still. I'm less idealistic now, but I was idealistic then and really thought that I could do some good for agriculture, especially in developing countries. And so I left that company because I thought their motives and my motives were somewhat different. And I realized I needed to be back at a university, especially a public university, where I could pursue something more idealistic. But I also didn't want to leave California, so that was a bit of a problem. So if you want to work on plant genetics in California, there's basically Davis, and then there's also Stanford and Berkeley and a couple of other places, but mostly there's Davis. And so I began to look at opportunities at Davis, and there were a lot of professors who were on the verge of retirement. And fortunately, one of those was Harold Olmo in the Department of Viticulture and Enology, who was a pioneering grape breeder and geneticist. He had retired. His position was vacant. I applied for it. I got it. And that's how I got into grapes. Never having worked on grapevines before, the closest I had been to a grapevine was a glass of wine. And so I had a lot to learn. But all the principles that I had learned and been using with other crops were directly applicable to grape. 
except that grain was harder. Because when you consider major crops like corn and wheat and soybean and tomatoes and tobacco and those sorts of things and rice, those are all annual plants. And breeding them is something that you can do relatively fast. But grapevines are a woody plant with a long junction time. And because they are not a major food crop, there had not been a lot of private sector money involved. You know, there weren't the big seed companies involved in grapes. And so almost all the research on grapes had only been done at public institutions all over the world in grape and wine producing countries. And so grape was pretty far behind all the other major crops I'd been working with. And my job was to try to bring it up to speed. So that's what I set out to do. So prior to DNA testing, how were grape varieties identified? Grape varieties were identified by their appearance. And that's a field, an art, called ampelography. It comes from the Greek, meaning ampelos is grape and graphy is description. So people would identify grape varieties by their appearance, not so much the fruit, because the fruit is not all that distinctive. You know, you take a a Chardonnay berry or a Pinot Blanc berry, they don't look all that different. Or a Cabernet Sauvignon berry and a Merlot berry, they don't look all that different. And when you consider that there's thousands and thousands of grape varieties, to think that you might be able to distinguish them by looking just at their fruit, the clusters of grapes, I mean, it's just, it's hopeless. But the leaves, on the other hand, the leaves are really distinctive. It's just amazing. It was a bit of a an epiphany for me when I first started working with grapes to realize how the distinction, the physical distinction is in the leaves. It's not in the fruit. So something like a Zinfandel leaf is really characteristic. You're not likely to mix it up with anything else. A Cabernet Sauvignon leaf, a Chardonnay leaf, these are all really distinctive leaves. And so that's basically how people had identified grape varieties in the past. However, you still find some that are very, very similar to each other. And you sometimes have to call in outside experts like here in California Whenever there was a question about the identity of the vines growing in a vineyard, sometimes someone at Davis could not solve the problem and an outside expert would have to be called in, notably someone from the European country that that variety was thought to have come from. So if you've got what you think is an Italian grape, well, then the next time an Italian expert comes through, you ask them, take a look at your vineyard. And so this happened time and time again, but sometimes you would get the experts arguing with each other and there was nobody around to resolve these conflicts because, you know, if one guy says, well, I think it's Chardonnay and another guy says, well, I think it's Pinot Blanc and another guy says, well, I think it's Malone, who's going to judge? Who's going to decide which one's right? And so until DNA came along, a lot of these things just remained unresolved. It was mostly the strongest personality who won the day. Is ampelography still studied today? Is that still an art or a science that people study? It's not a scientific endeavor today, but it's still something that people use because you can do it on the run. You know, you can walk through a vineyard and you can clearly tell, wait a second, that is not Cabernet Sauvignon. Or wait a second, you know, that is not Zinfandel. Or something that actually did happen not too long ago, that is not Roussin. You know, that's Viognier, that's not Roussin. And so 
Sometimes it's very obvious when a mistake has been made, but now when a mistake is detected at first, just visually, it is usually then confirmed by DNA testing. Are there examples where the leaves look very different, but it's actually the same variety? Not so much, no. Generally speaking, although there really is, there can be a lot of variation within a variety. It's typically not in the leaves. There might be some differences in the fruit and variation within a variety. That's what clones are. Okay, so clones Mm. are variants within a variety. They're the same variety, but they're little subtypes that have evolved over time. And usually the difference is in something to do with the fruit. It might be visual, like it might be a color thing, like when you get Tremainer and Gewürztraminer, which are the same variety, they're color clones, or Pinot Blanc, Pinot Noir. Those are color clones of the same variety. But in those cases, the leaves are not different. It's just the fruit that's different. Mm. Or sometimes it might be a clone where the color's not different, but the cluster might be looser. The berries might be smaller, and that can come in really handy if you're in an area that has summer rain and rot is a problem. If you have clusters that are very loose, then they're going to dry off faster because there's better air movement through the cluster. And so that can be really useful in areas where there's a lot of bunch rot. Is this how Chile mistook Carmenere for Merlot for many decades? Yes, exactly. Well, yeah, you know. And Australia has screwed things up and California has screwed things up and and South Africa, every new world country, every single new world (laughs) country has screwed up some of the variety identities because the grapes were brought over by immigrants. The variety names were not important. In Europe, variety names were not important at all. It was the place names that were important. And so often when these varieties got taken to new world countries, A name tag may have gotten screwed up or somebody just relied on their memory and they were wrong. And that was certainly the case with uh, Carmenere in Chile, which for a very long time was assumed to be Merlot, was labeled Merlot. And then a French colleague of mine named Jean-Michel Boursicot, who is the greatest living ampelographer today, he can walk through a vineyard at a clip, I mean, practically running and name every variety. If he's in a mixed vineyard, he can walk along and just look left, right, left, right, and just call out what the varieties are. And I have seen him do it. And I've often told him, Jean-Michel, you are better than DNA. You're a whole (laughs) lot faster. You're pretty much as accurate and you're less expensive. So he was the one one who first figured out in Chile that what they were calling Merlot was really Carmenere. And then later on, we did do the DNA testing to confirm it. But there was never any question. If Jean-Michel said it's Carmenere, then it's Carmenere. So I'm curious with DNA identification, are you testing for the things that are the same or things that are different in the DNA structure? Because I got to assume there's maybe a slight difference of approving whether these two things are different or the same and like how much nuance is in there. Like, are you testing like junk DNA or are you testing the exact you know, full sequencing? What we're doing is looking at segments of the DNA that are called microsatellites or simple sequence repeats. They are small repeating segments and the extent to which the number of repeats in one of those segments can be quite characteristic. And this is exactly the same technique that is used for a lot of uh, human DNA profiling. Everything that people do in plants, they have learned from animal genetics and not just human genetics, but also some of the animals that are used a lot experimentally like mice and rats. 
and infect our kind of our eureka moment with using DNA to identify grapevines and to figure out their relationships came when one of my graduate students and I, his name is John Bowers, he and I went to a seminar at the UC Davis Medical School given by a guy who was named, I think it was Eric Lander, who's still a very prominent scientist. Anyway, he was talking about hypertension in rats and he showed the techniques that they had used And the light bulb went on and John and I realized that we could use those techniques in grape and that's kind of what really got us going. So what we're looking for when we develop a DNA profile is that we use a bunch of different markers to identify a grape variety. It's a minimum of six markers and these markers have been developed specifically for this purpose. We started doing this right around, oh, I think it might have been around 1991. And it became clear that this technology really had some potential. But given that, as I mentioned before, grape genetics was in a rather primitive state compared to some of the major agronomic crops and compared to humans and mice. So we didn't have markers. We knew that the concept would work. You know, we knew that it it could be applied to grape, but we didn't have the markers. And you cannot take markers from another species. You have to develop them in your own species. And so... I got in touch with every grape research lab I knew of in the world that might be interested in doing this. And we put together what we ended up calling the Vitus Microsatellite Consortium. It was 20 research groups in 10 countries. All of our institutions had to sign contracts, and you can just imagine how long that took, all those bureaucratic lawyers getting involved, because this was intellectual property that each of us was going to be developing, and our institutions, of course, have a vested interest in controlling their intellectual property, because in the world of biotech, intellectual property is quite valuable. So all of our institutions had to agree that we were going to share all this information, So we formed this consortium, and in the course of just about a year, maybe two, I can't remember, we had developed hundreds of these markers that we could use. To identify a variety, you only need six, although it sure helps if you have a few more. But if you're going to be working on some of the later things that we worked on, like trying to figure out which varieties descended from which parental varieties, then you need a whole lot more because the statistical requirements become much more challenging and you need a lot more compelling evidence to prove it. So what we're looking for if we're simply going to identify a variety is a match. What we have to do is we have to have an authentic reference. So if we have, say, this sample from this Merlot vineyard in Chile that we think maybe is actually Carmenere, we have to have an example of an authentic Carmenere. We didn't have that in California. So in my lab, we relied very heavily on our European colleagues to help us get authentic reference samples of all these varieties. So for Carmenere, we got a a reference DNA sample from uh, my friend Jean-Michel Boursicot, the guy who's better than DNA, but he also appreciates DNA. And we actually already, we had made it our mission to get as many reference samples from the French National Collection that Jean-Michel was in charge of at the time as many examples as we could until we had several hundred references of French varieties. And so I think we may have already had Carmenere, but I can't quite remember. So we would compare a questionable sample 
to an authentic sample, and we would expect their DNA profiles to match exactly. Back in the day, it was a visual match. We were looking at bands on a gel. Today, it's all automated and it's done electronically by machines that simply go through and they can read it all and they churn out a bunch of numbers. So it's gotten much more highly automated than it was when we first got started. So for things you're testing, I'm assuming that there's a marker for color pigmentation in the grapes. And if that's, you know, like your trimeter versus trimeter, the rosé version. No, no, there is not. It's not that simple. There's certainly a connection, of course, between DNA and color. But if you want to look at color, for example, the color in a Cabernet Sauvignon is the end product of a rather long biosynthetic pathway that has a number of different steps. Each of those steps is governed by an enzyme and it's regulated by other kinds of molecules as well. Each of those enzymes and those other regulatory molecules, each of those is governed by a gene. So there can be many, many genes involved in color development in a grape berry. And all you've got to do is knock out one of them and you've got a pink berry or a completely colorless berry. And so that's what happened with Pinot Noir, Pinot Gris, Pinot Blanc. The very first form of the variety would have been the Noir, because that's how grapes are in the wild. They're dark. And so it's a loss of function then that gives you the lighter colored berries. But there's never a single gene, usually not a single gene that controls a trait. Most traits are multigenic, which is what makes it very difficult to genetically change grapes. You you have to really understand an awful lot about what controls a trait if you then want to change it, either through conventional breeding or through biotechnology. So with those traits for Pinot Noir and Pinot Blanc, does that make each one of those, not varieties, but sub-varieties a clone or is it something else? They are. And here's where it gets difficult because the use of the term variety The term is used differently by scientists than it is by producers and people in the trade. So if you are a wine producer or a wine merchant, you're certainly going to look at a bottle of Pinot Noir and a bottle of Pinot Gris, and you're going to say, those guys are different. They are different varieties. Are you kidding me? I mean, of course. But in science, of course, in biology, we would consider those to be just clonal variants of a single variety. And so that has been problematic. I've been in a number of discussions with people who are involved in international regulations. I used to be very involved with the OIV, which is an international, it's an intergovernmental organization of grape and wine producers. It's headquartered in Paris and the US is a member and all the wine producing countries are members. And they used to meet, they'd meet once a year for a a general assembly. And then there would be meetings of subgroups, what they would call expert committees at other times of the year. And I remember having so many arguments with people about the definition of a variety. Now, if you're in France, if you're French speaking, it's much easier because in France, the word is cépage. And everybody knows that Pinot Noir, Pinot Blanc, Pinot Gris are the same cépage. It's just ingrained. It's just, it's known. It's it's not a problem. But if you're in an English-speaking country and you try to say that those three are the same variety, no, you know, that's just a no-go. That will not fly. So that's been a bit of a problem. 
So yes, technically Pinot Gris, Pinot Noir, Pinot Blanc are clones of the same variety, but it gets messy. And I like to avoid that discussion altogether because you can't win. Nobody wins that one. So do you have, what is the scientific definition for grape variety then? Oh, well, the scientific definition is a cultivated variety that if you trace it back far enough, goes back to one single original seedling, one plant, just one plant that grew from a seed. And we can prove that by using DNA. So if you take, say, Cabernet Sauvignon, you take a sample from South Africa, a sample from Chile, a sample from Australia, a sample from California, a sample from Bordeaux, and all of those plants have been dispersed for centuries and grown on thousands and thousands of acres. There have been millions of individual vines. But if you look at the DNA profile in enough detail of all those samples, it becomes evident that they must have originated from a single seedling. Because if you look at two seedlings, so say you go to a Cabernet Sauvignon vine and you take two berries and you extract the seeds from those berries. If you've ever eaten a wine grape, you know that they're full of seeds. <laughs> uh, they're not like table grapes at all. They're full of seeds. They have up to four seeds. So if you take a seed from one berry and a seed from another Cabernet Sauvignon berry and you plant them, you get two different individuals that will have quite distinct DNA profiles. So if you then if you take samples from Cabernet Sauvignon vines from all over the world and look at their DNA profiles, it becomes obvious to a geneticist that they all came from one original seedling. So that's the definition. Hmm. It's vines that originally came from one original seedling. So then going on to clones, how would you, what is the correct definition of clone in terms of, I know that's colloquially used differently, that like technically the, some of the varieties are technically clones, but how would you define scientifically clone then? A clone is a subtype within a variety, using variety in the scientific sense. So since Pinot is one variety, the French call it a cépage, we would call it a variety. So in that sense, then Pinot Noir, Pinot Blanc, Pinot Gris are clones of the same variety. If you look at their DNA profiles, it becomes very apparent. And of course, there are hundreds of clones of Pinot, most of which have blackberries and look very much the same. They may differ very slightly in maybe the form of the plant. Like there's something called Pinot Dois, D-R-O-I-T, which means Pinot upright. And it just has a more upright form than most Pinot. It's just a clone. And because the variation that exists among clones, even though they all derive from the same original seedling, those variations have arisen by somatic mutations, just little genetic changes that occur in the vine. So when you take a cutting off a vine to make a new vine, that cutting that you take is going to have a couple of buds. And when those buds were forming, a lot of cells were dividing and a lot of DNA was replicating and little genetic mistakes take place just like they do in your own body all the time. And in every living thing, these little genetic mistakes occur. Some by chance turn out to be beneficial. Some turn out to be deleterious. Most are probably neutral and don't really change anything. 
But over time, if you have a variety that has a large number of individual vines that are cultivated over many, many, many years, you are going to end up seeing some very slight genetic differences among them as the result of somatic mutations over time and place. So the corollary to that then is that the older a variety is and the more widespread its planting area, then the more likely it is that clones will have arisen. Clones arise all the time, but they really only become known when a grower or a wine producer notices them. If nobody notices them, then they go completely unsung, unrecognized. But the kinds of things that people notice are like looser clusters, because that can be really useful if you have bunch rot. Maybe a little earlier ripening. That can be also be useful in some places where early rainfall is an issue. Uh, higher sugar. That's really important in a cool area like Riesling. When people are looking to find better Riesling clones, they really jump on anything that uh, gets up to a, a little higher sugar concentration because that's often limiting in a cool area. So it's only when the differences are apparent to a grower or a winemaker that they then get noticed and that then those vines that are carrying those differences get preferentially chosen for propagation to make new vineyards. And often over time, that was never done in any systematic way. People would just pick the best vines to get cuttings from. But starting probably in the middle of the 20th century, several European countries began to develop systematic programs to search for, uh, verify, test, and number clones of their most important varieties. So in France, for example, this was done with Pinot Noir. And that's where we got all these numbered clones. You may have heard about the Dijon clones. Well, these were clones that were very deliberately identified given numbers. Syrah, you'll see the same thing. There's actually a French semi-governmental organization called ENTAV, E-N-T-A-V, that carries this out throughout the grape growing regions of France. And they usually focus on just a small number of varieties at a time. And they go into the area that is thought to be the oldest area of cultivation of that variety, because that's where you're most likely to find the diversity within the variety. And they ask the growers, it's called prospecting. They ask the old growers, the people who've been there a long time, who might, the ones who might know about distinctive subtypes, they ask them to point them out and then they get planted in a, a scientific comparison trial because often if you have differences in a growing area, it might be because the vineyard faces a different way or it has a little deeper soil or, you know, it gets a little more sun. And so in order to prove that the differences are real, you have to take cuttings of all these putative subtypes, plant them side by side in one plot, monitor them over a number of years, and then confirm that the differences are real or, or not real. And if they are real, then ONTAV or some other organization in another country will register it in their national system, give it a number or a name, and then make it available to the commercial nurseries in that country for distribution to growers who want them. So do all grape varieties have the same propensity to make clonal mutations or are some 
to some fracture more easily and have these minor mutations. Like I hear you hear about PNR and Chardonnay more often than you hear about Cabernet. Or I know there are clones of Cabernet, but it seems like you hear about those more often. Is that just they're more studied? It's a couple of different things. There is a general consensus that Pinot has a greater propensity for somatic mutation. Nobody's quite sure why, but there is no variety that has the number of known clones. But remember also, Pinot is a very, very, very old variety. It's one of the very oldest varieties. It may be the closest variety we have to a wild grape. It's very close to a wild grape. But the other thing that's a factor is the age of a variety. So I mentioned that somatic mutation, it's something that occurs naturally, but the longer a variety has been around, the more likely there will have been divergence by the accumulation of different somatic mutations in different places. So if you have a very, very old variety, like Pinot, like Syrah, for example, you are more likely to see clonal variation than you are in a young variety. And the best example of a young variety is Cabernet Sauvignon. It's actually a very young variety. It's only about, it's less than 400 years old. It's generally thought that Cabernet Sauvignon arose as a natural seedling in Bordeaux in the early 1700s. It was probably just a seed that was pooped out by a bird in a vineyard. So birds poop out grape seeds from the berries that they eat and, you know, and they drop the seeds all over the place. Some get dropped in a stream where they go downstream. Some get dropped on a sidewalk or, you know, a a roadway where they get run over. But some get dropped in a vineyard. If they get dropped in a part of the vineyard that's nice and healthy and has a lot of vines, well, then they might get pulled out as weeds. But a lot of old vineyards had a lot of empty spots. And so if a seed gets dropped in an empty spot and a seedling sprouts, well, that's pretty convenient because now you've got a replacement vine where you had an empty spot before. And so Cabernet Sauvignon most likely arose as just a chance seedling in a Bordeaux vineyard in the early 1700s. But it's not enough that it popped up as a seedling because grape seedlings pop up all the time in vineyards. But what is important is that there was something that was noticed about it such that it became preferentially chosen for future propagation. And the general thinking among people who've given this a lot of thought is that what caused Cabernet Sauvignon to be preferentially singled out was frost. And I think it was 1706, something like that. There was a severe frost in Bordeaux. I mean, a really severe frost and A lot of vines were damaged, but every once in a while, there would be a vine that was less damaged than others. Well, guess what? Cabernet Sauvignon tends to have late bud break. And that because it has late bud break, that means that a spring frost, and when we're talking frost in vineyards, we're talking spring frost, because winter frost is not a problem. A hard freeze in the winter is a problem, but a frost is not a problem in the winter for a grapevine because it's dormant. But in the springtime, once those buds start to grow and you have little green shoots, they're very vulnerable to temperatures below freezing and they get damaged. But Cabernet Sauvignon, one of its distinctive traits is that it leaves out later in the springtime. If you drive around Napa right now, you see lots of leaves except on the Cabernet vines. You don't see a leaf because they're so late. 
So that means that when the frost would have damaged all the other vines around that area, around Bordeaux, it would not have damaged the Cabernet Sauvignon original vine because it leafed out later. And therefore, later on in that growing season, when you had just terrible conditions, when most of the other vines didn't even have any fruit because their shoots had been so badly damaged, here you've got this Cabernet Sauvignon vine, which is doing just great. So... When people are now trying to fill holes in their vineyard or to plant new vineyards, they look at that vine and they say, that's the one I want. And so they take as many cuttings off that vine as they can and they plant new vines. Well, then a couple of years later, when those vines have grown up, people take more cuttings and they plant new vines. So every single Cabernet Sauvignon vine in the whole entire world today came from that one original vine uh, that grew from a seed that was pooped up by a bird into an empty space in a Bordeaux vineyard in a frosty year. Bird poop has some real value. (laughs) What are grape families then, like the Muscat grape family or Lambrusco grape family? How do we define those and what do those mean? Oh, that's another term that has no scientific meaning. And don't get me started, geez, on terminology. Because grapes and wine are so much a part of our culture, In so many countries, we have a lot of language around grapes and wine in multiple languages. So this notion of a family, well, let's take muscat, for example. Muscat is a type of flavor. And there are some very, very ancient muscat varieties. And it is thought that all the muscat varieties around today, and there there are a fair number of them, that they all are probably descendants of one or two original, very, very ancient muscat varieties that just arose naturally. They would have arisen naturally just by a natural mutation in one of the flavor pathways that gave rise to the muscat aroma. There is a research group in Italy And I believe this work was led by Anna Schneider, and they studied all the muscat varieties they could find in Italy and tried to relate them to each other. And that's basically what they did, what they found that they were all somewhat related and probably all derived from just a couple of really old ones. So that would mean there's two or three varieties? With some mutations. And then we're just grouped together? No, they're descended. They're descended, just like we never got into the origin of Cabernet Sauvignon. Every grape variety has two parents. So Cabernet Sauvignon, its parents are Cabernet Franc and Sauvignon Blanc. And so probably the vineyard with the empty spot where the first Cabernet Sauvignon vine grew was probably a largely Cabernet Franc vineyard. And it might have had a few other things growing in it. So every variety is descended from two older varieties. And so if you go back far enough, you end up going to wild vines, okay? Because the grapes were originally wild and you still do, there's still a few places in Europe where you can find them growing wild. Not too many, there have been lots of habitat there and it's hard to find truly wild ones. So in the muscats, I don't know, I haven't studied the muscats myself and I'm not familiar in detail with the research on the muscat, but I think that there are just a couple of ancient muscat varieties and that all the other muscat varieties have descended from them genetically as seedlings. They arose as seedlings, so they are not clones. They are all distinct varieties. But then where it gets a little complicated 
is that some of them are clones. So if they take samples from this place and if they say they take samples of 40 muscat varieties, they'll find that, wait a minute, these five that are all going by different names, muscat D, something or other, you know, the different place names, these five are all the same thing. But now these over here, they're so different. And it's the, it's the same thing with Lambrusco. So this is what happens when you have an ancient grape growing area that has been very, very regional in its history, where it, it wasn't even a country, you know, where it was just so many different distinct little city-states, and they were all very local in their view. And so they all named their grape varieties after their own areas. And it wasn't until much, much later that somebody like Anna Schneider comes along and tries to figure out what the hell is all this stuff. So with Lambrusco, it's the same kind of thing where there are, there are several distinct Lambruscos, but a lot of them are also clones of these several distinct ones. Hmm. I was in a Gambera Rosso a class where they were talking about different Lambrusco wines. And one of the presenters was saying that it was actually not Vitis Vinifera. It was actually Vitis Lambrusca grapes. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure that's not correct. <laughs> no, no, that's not correct. Lambrusco is Vitis Vinifera. Everything grown in Europe is Vitis Vinifera. There are a lot of wild grapes in North America, a whole lot. It's one of the greatest places for wild grape species. And one of those wild grape species is Labrusca, with no M, Vitus Labrusca. And it has been very, very important in developing some of the French and American hybrids that have been used for wine since the 1900s. So it has been very important, but it has nothing to do with Lambrusco. Yeah, nothing. Italians are not great at naming things. They just always joke that Trebbiano's default for a white Italian grape. So, but this is a good segue into hybrids. How would you define a hybrid exactly? And what are the values of hybrids that they give for the wine world? This is another one of those terms where people have different definitions. So in genetics, a hybrid is the offspring of two different parents. Okay. So it can be a hybrid, two parents of the same species, but they're pretty different within that species, or it can be an offspring of two different species, like a mule, you know, a horse and a donkey. That's an interspecific hybrid. In grapes, a lot of varieties that were developed here and also in France in order to try to deal with phylloxera in the 1800s and early 1900s, a lot of crosses were made between of vinifera and various American grape species. And so those were interspecific hybrids. Some of them still exist today and are used to make wine today in the Northeastern United States and also in Ontario. So those are interspecific hybrids. Where it gets a little confusing is that because we were able to demonstrate back in 1997 that Cabernet Sauvignon is the offspring of two different varieties, Cabernet Franc and Sauvignon Blanc, people started calling Cabernet Sauvignon a hybrid because it was the offspring of two different parents. But these were two parents within the same species. So, But it, it's still technically, technically it's a hybrid, but it's not an interspecific hybrid. So when you're talking about hybrids in grapes, you really have to use the term interspecific hybrid if you're referring to the French and American hybrids that were developed to combat phylloxera. And 
when we use the word hybrid to refer to our kind of research where we found the parents of grape varieties, those are all within vinifera. Genetically, they are hybrids. I tend to not use that word because of its connotation, because it gets so confusing with the phylloxera thing. Hey, listeners, we had such a great time interviewing Carol Meredith, and there was so much information that we decided to break it up into two episodes. So we're going to end this episode here on grape DNA profiling and join us next week as we talk about discovering Zinfandel. Should be a great episode with lots of great content. Looking forward to having you join us again. Cheers. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers.